Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. For those of you who are not aware who I am, I pastored here uh, for about 11 years, and it's always a real treat to come back. Uh, I've been serving now the last 11 years at our national office in Guelph as our national president and have been crisscrossing our country and visiting missionaries around the world. We have missionaries in almost 20 different nations. I'm leaving in March for uh, Colombia and Honduras to see some of them. And what a joy it is to serve our churches in uh, the way in which God has really been uh, allowing me to do this last decade. Marilyn's not with me today, but she wanted me to bring her greetings to you as well. She's visiting our two daughters, you'll probably recall Caitlin and Jessica, who both live in Vancouver. Why they would want to live that side of the country, I don't know. But that's where they are. But if the truth be told, Marilyn is in Vancouver actually to visit our granddaughter, Isidore. That's the main reason she's there. I hate to tell my daughters that. My son Alec is still the loyal one who stayed in Ontario, and uh, we just uh, have the joy of him in a, a closer by anyway. Uh, I do have some information that I've brought with me, and I'd encourage you after the service to, I'll be out in the foyer, love to see you, but uh, make you more aware of what's happening in this movement called the Fellowship of which Temple is a part of. And whether you're here this morning or whether you're online watching, uh, you can go to that website, www.fellowship.ca, and see a whole mess of information related to what we collectively as 500 plus churches are doing uh, for the Lord in this country and around the world. And so come by, pick up some material, get a little bit more familiar with some of the international news, some of the relief and justice projects that we're involved in. Our Francophone ministry, Quebec still remains one of the most spiritually needy places on the planet, not just Canada, but on the planet. And we gather churches together to partner. Temple is one of them, by the way. And they were church planting in Quebec. We're the largest French-speaking denomination in Quebec today as a result of that. And our chaplaincy ministry has grown from 27 chaplains to 137 chaplains all in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. It's our fastest-growing ministry. Individuals, men and women, lay people who become volunteer chaplains, you could become a chaplain because so many of these institutions won't let just you walk in. You need to be credentialed to be able to come in. And so we have uh, full-time professional chaplains, and we have volunteer chaplains, fellowship chaplains, who give two hours of uh, their week to some area of ministry. Our chaplains are currently in about 14 different areas. Now, uh, last time I was here, I was telling you about a FAIR appeal. FAIR is our Fellowship Aid International Relief Department. It takes care of relief and development and justice issues. And the good news I wanted to share with you is for those who participated and donated towards that FAIR appeal, we have been able to surpass the target. It was to start a um, residency program in a Christian hospital in which one of our missionaries is serving, a surgeon from our Bay Park Church in Kingston, Ontario. And Josh is serving there in Madagascar, wanted to start a residency program for doctors, Madagascar doctors, who need to become surgeons. This is a country of 26 million people, only 100 surgeons in the entire country. And I'm so excited to tell you the first two residents have actually arrived in a five-year program, and the funding is going to be allowing these and other doctors become surgeons in that country. 
The current fair appeal, and I understand there's going to be, I hope, uh, is there going to be a video? I hope there is. There is. Okay, thank you, Gail. Uh, is the current fair appeal, of which I would love for you to prayerfully consider giving to. It's, uh, I'm going in March to see this ministry. I've been there before. In uh, Casa Hogar is a children's home in Sequakapeki, which is in the north. Uh, west corner of Honduras, where marginalized children are being gathered together, and they are being invited to receive Jesus. But also, it's a holistic ministry caring for every need of these children. We've been involved with this ministry for now over a decade, and it's become apparent we have to build a larger facility. And that's what this this uh, targeted project is, trying to raise 150000 to build a second building. I'm going to let the video tell you the rest of the story. Let's watch this. There's no place like home. For the readers of The Wizard of Oz, this line sticks in the mind. It can rekindle memories of your own home. Was it a safe place to be? Was it a place filled with love? Unfortunately, not every child lives in a safe home. Gladys's mom loved her daughters deeply and had an intense longing to provide the very best for them. But she knew that their home, located in a violent and dangerous part of their city, was not a good place to raise a family. She came face to face with the heartbreaking decision to surrender care of her girls so that they could be safe and have hope for a better future. Soon after, Gladys and her sister arrived at Casa Hogar, where they were able to live in safety within a new community and family. They were shown much love and were given help to heal from the trauma of their young lives. 20 years later, Gladys graduated from the National University with a Bachelor of Accounting degree. While at Casa Hogar, she had developed a deep love for Jesus and a passion to use her skills with numbers to help others within her community. Established in 2000, in response to the rising number of homeless and or abandoned children in Honduras, the work that soon became Casa Hogar began. This Christian children's home, located in western Honduras, provides the loving support of a home and family environment to 29 at-risk children and youth up to the age of 23. Fellowship International missionary Melody Francis and a team of staff and volunteers currently care for these kids through the provision of food, clothing, medical care, education, fun, love and compassion, and spiritual guidance. Children come to know God as their father and Jesus as their eternal companion. As you can imagine, 29 children and staff living together in one building can also be challenging. Just imagine all of these children and teens using the same space for meals, school, homework, and personal time, while also dealing with their own unique individual trauma and psychological needs. With a vision and plans in place to provide a better arrangement, FAIR has launched a fundraising initiative with a goal of raising $150,000 that will improve the quality of care and education for everyone. This includes the construction of a new building for the teens to call home and the renovation of the existing home where the rest of the children will continue to live. As was the case with Gladys, we want each child to be given the best opportunity possible to heal, learn, and grow in order to become thriving adults. Would you prayerfully consider how you can partner with FAIR through this life-impacting appeal? Your involvement will give children, teens, and young adults the opportunity to better prepare for the future God has for them.
So if the Lord lays that on your heart to participate in that, you can just go online to our uh, website, fellowship.ca, and you can donate. Um, we have missionaries there, fellowship international missionaries who've been sent out from our churches who are caring for these children along with some Honduras staff. It's a remarkable ministry, and I'd encourage you to pray about that, would you? Well, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time as we uh, pick up the, the word and, uh, and just share a few thoughts from God's word this morning. Father, we are truly grateful to be in your presence. And Lord, we have offered our worship through song. And now, Father, we offer our worship through our attention to your word. Every opportunity to open your word is an opportunity for you to speak to us. And my prayer, Father, is that is exactly what's going to happen amongst those who are here in this auditorium or those online that will allow the Spirit of God to speak to us and that there would be something that we would apply to our lives this day, this week, for your glory but also our great good. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by asking you a question. Would you like to be blessed? Would you like to know that in 2022, there is this capacity to be richly blessed by God? Well, let me share a statement that you may not agree with right away, but I hope in the next 30 minutes to persuade you. And it's simply this. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, if you are that individual this morning, you get to choose every single day how much God blesses you. You get to choose. You get to choose how much God chooses to bless you. Now, for some folks, that seems a little bit arrogant. I get to choose and tell God how he blesses me? No, no, I don't feel right. I mean, that doesn't even feel very Canadian, quite frankly, let alone Christian in some degree. But I would say it's actually a premise that is taught throughout the New Testament. The principle of sowing and reaping. What you sow, you should, in response, expect something to be harvested, or there should be a reaping. And if you sow much, the scripture, the New Testament says over and over again, if you sow a lot of seed, if you sow much, you will receive much in return. We see this throughout the New Testament. The problem is that this health and wealth gospel that is so prevalent in not just North America, but around the world. As I travel around the world, it's everywhere. It's really a problem. This, 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 you know, this, this health and wealth gospel that believes everybody should have a pink Cadillac in the driveway. And it's, you know, it's, I just demand it. I mean, it just ruins this very biblical premise of sowing and reaping. You get to choose, as a follower of Jesus, every single day, you get to choose how much God chooses to bless you. Here's a word from Jesus. Matthew 9, 29, according to your faith, it will be done to you. So, okay, so according to my faith, it, God, it, it will be done to me? Yeah. There is this co-relationship between God blessing me and my capacity to believe him at his word. His word is just chock full of promises and principles and precepts. And if I follow, if I, I mean, the prudent, the wise Christian follows what this says. And if you believe it, I mean, don't just give verbal assent to say, oh yeah, yeah, amen, amen. No, you are inculcating it. You are applying it to your life on a daily basis. The wise Christian does that because blessing follows. God says, hey, hey, it's not rocket science. This is the stuff I bless. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? The reality is in North America, 
It's becoming more difficult, certainly, but it's been pretty easy to be a Christian. I visit some countries where it's very difficult to be a Christian. In North Africa, in the Middle East, I'm going there in June again. And we can coast, and it can be pretty easy. And we talk about faith and our struggle with faith. And, but the reality is, I need to ask myself frequently, do I really believe this? And the co-relationship with blessing is there. God blesses those who truly believe, who step out in faith. The blessing follows. Jesus would go on to say, anything is possible if a person believes. Anything? That's what Jesus said. It wasn't hyperbole. He wasn't exaggerating. Anything is possible if a person believes. Hmm. So when my son Alec was very young, maybe five or six years old, I was trying to teach him this concept of, you know, walking by faith. I mean, conceptually, that's difficult to teach adults. What does it mean on a daily basis to walk by faith? And, um, you know, I said to my son, I said, you know, Alec, this may, be a, uh, this may be a poor analogy, but it's all I got when I was a young dad back then. I said, Alec, it's like... <laughs> Faith is like a muscle. If you want to have a strong faith, just like you want to have strong muscles, like your dad. I mean, he was five. What did he know? I mean, if you, if you, you want to be strong like your dad, you, you're going to have to exercise your muscles. And Alec was, he still is so full of energy. I mean, there were days that I would just say, run around the house five times, then come back in. You're driving me nuts. Just get all that out of you, all that energy out of you. He just ran. I, I remember we, we lived out in the country at the time, and uh, he'd you know, be running and you know, climbing trees, and you know, he was just constant. I said, keep it up, because as you exercise those muscles, you're going to be a strong man. But as you exercise the faith muscle, your faith will strengthen over time. And things that we used to struggle by faith used to struggle and worry and, and be anxious, you know, over time we discover, hey, I'm not anxious over that anymore. No, there's been incremental steps of faith as you've been walking with God, trusting him, believing him at his word. When he says, I will provide, I will protect, I believe that, Lord. The blessing falls, the blessing falls. Well, there's a wonderful story, and if you've got your Bibles or your smartphones, I'm going to ask you to turn there to Luke's Gospel, chapter, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. I want to read this story. It's uh, maybe familiar, maybe it's new to you, but it's a story that I read now whew, 39, 40 years ago as a brand new believer. And this story just made sense to me when it came to walking by faith. It was very helpful. I, I trust it's going to be helpful to you. It's the story of a Roman officer, one of the most unlikely characters that Jesus would use to provide for us a model of someone who was exercising the faith, a faith the way Jesus wants us all to exercise. I want to read the story, verses 1 to verse 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Dr. Luke. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he went back to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was sort of the capital city in the northern part of Israel in that day. It was a, it's a city that was right on the coastline of the Galilean Sea. I mean, in Israel, they call it a sea, but it's really just a lake. You know, 14 miles by 7 miles, that's a lake. But when you don't have big bodies of water, you can call it a sea if you want. But it's the Galilean Sea, and Capernaum is sort of the capital city. It is where all roads in that area lead to Capernaum. 
all roads. If you want to sell your merchandise or you want to go see a professional like a lawyer or you want to go see uh, sort of the cultural aspect of music. And so, I mean, you, all roads led to Capernaum. And this is what Jesus often did in his itinerant ministry. He would go to places and set up camp or set up headquarters. And from there, he would go off and preach during whole days or days and then come back. And so Capernaum was kind of like that area. It's where uh, the apostle Peter's mother-in-law lived. And it's likely that's where Jesus was staying. So when Jesus had finished saying all this, he went back to Capernaum, verse 2. Now the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to come with them and help the man. If anyone deserves your help, it's he, they said, for he loves the Jews and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the, at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and, and, and meet you. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know that because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come. And they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this or that, they do it. Verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was, here's the word, amazed. When was the last time you read anywhere in the New Testament describing Jesus amazed by anyone? It's pretty remarkable. That's why I think this is a very important story for us to be familiar with. This is a story where Jesus was amazed by an individual. Wouldn't you like to amaze Jesus once in a while? Bang. Just once in a while. Verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd, Jesus said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Now, folks, if you think this story, the, the, key, the key premise of the story, the, the, the big idea of the story is a story of healing, you have missed the point. It's a wonderful story of God's healing hand on someone. But it's really a story about faith, about faith. And I would dare say that all of us need to hear this message. When we're in times of struggle, whether it's as individuals or at work or as a church, we need to step up and be people of faith. Not to grow weary, not to give up, but to step up and exercise that muscle called faith. And if we don't exercise it, we remain weak. Those muscles atrophy very quickly. The same is true with faith. We have this in the story, um, this NLT talks about him as being a Roman officer, but the the, uh, King James Version, the NIV, refers to him as as a centurion. Now, we know quite a bit about Roman centurions, and Dr. Luke tells us a little bit about this specific centurion. But centurions would be viewed back in the day as really the backbone of the Roman Empire, the Roman army. These were the most revered individuals who would take men into battle, generally between 100 and 140 men would go into battle and they would do whatever their centurion told them to be, told them to do. These, these individuals were viewed as brave, sometimes brash, oftentimes brilliant. 
These men were men's men, that men would go into battle and do whatever he called out. They were tacticians in their own right, so that when the battle was going askew, the commander knew that his centurions would make adjustments to win the day. In fact, the commander knew he would win the day based on the cohort of centurions he had he was so dependent on. These were significant individuals in the Roman army, the backbone of the Roman army. And yet Dr. Luke tells us a few things about this specific centurion living in the Capernaum area. I don't know if we have a, I guess we don't, okay. Um, uh, the, first, the first thing that Dr. Luke tells us about in, verses, in verse five is that this man was a man who was willing to sacrifice. That's not necessarily true of all centurions. He was willing to sacrifice. What happened here? I mean, some Jewish leaders, probably leaders in the synagogue in Capernaum, they, 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 they are sent by this Roman officer, this centurion, to go meet this young 30-something-year-old rabbi named Jesus. Now that in itself says something about this centurion. I mean, the Jewish overlords, these these, uh, the Roman overlords were not well viewed by the Jews. They had come and they had conquered their land. And they had constant rebellion, constant trouble with the Jews. No one really wanted to go work in Judea from Rome. But there has been obviously something that has occurred between this centurion and the Jewish respected leaders, enough so that they're willing to be his emissaries. And he sends them out. And these Jewish leaders look at Jesus and say, he's a good one. He's not like the other Roman officers. This guy's different. He's a good one. From his own wallet, he, he built us a synagogue. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. If some individual coming along and said, uh, you know, Pastor James, here's a check for $10 million. Go build you a new building. I mean, that would be impressive, right? Well, this is what has happened. He has been willing to sacrifice from his own purse for these people that made such an impression they were willing to be emissaries on his behalf to this young rabbi whom this Roman soldier had heard stories about, tremendous stories about. That's the first thing we learn. Then Dr. Luke goes on to tell us in verse two and three that he is a man who is willing to be merciful, merciful. And again, this is not necessarily the first character trait you think of when you think of a Roman officer. These men were tough. They were honorable men, but they were courageous men. They went into battle. They could be ruthless. They were not viewed necessarily as men of mercy. That's really not what you think of when you think of a Roman officer, a man of mercy. And he shows mercy to his slave. In fact, he's heard enough stories of the healing work of this, this uh, rabbi named Jesus, enough that he has called on him to come and to heal this slave who is obviously near to death. Near to death. And, and he shows mercy. I mean, the, the regular Roman officer would have just sought him as property. So he's sick. Okay, he's dead. And then he goes to one of his managing slaves, say, okay, go to the Agora, the marketplace on Saturday morning and buy me a new one. That would be the typical response of a Roman uh, officer. But not in this man's case. He's, he's different. Dr. Luke is trying to tell us he's a little bit different. The third thing Dr. Luke tells us about in verse 6 is that he's a humble man. Once again, not the first character trait you think of of a Roman officer. Humility. These are courageous, 
These are get-the-job-done kind of guys. These are the men that men will go into battle and slash their way through an enemy. These are not necessarily people who are viewed as humble. And yet this insignificant officer in this area shows humility to a young 30-something-year-old rabbi who doesn't even have his mega church in Jerusalem. There's really nothing stupendous about him. He's, he's just a young guy. And in Jewish culture, he's really not viewed as a mature male until he's about 40. He's a kid. And he shows deference to him. In the same story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, it even, even accentuates this very point when he says, You're, I'm not even worthy to have you in my home. He says this to this young rabbi. Now, I, I can't say this as a certainty, but there's every reason to believe that he's the most powerful man in the region. Often what would happen is the Roman army would go and do what they do well. They'd go and they conquer. And they establish Roman law and Roman culture. They impose it upon the people. But the politicians back in Rome were often slow to you know, catch up with the army. I mean, who wants to leave Rome? And you remember the old 1950 movies with Victor Mature and Rex Harrison. And I mean, these, these senators with, you know, slaves with ostrich feather fans, fanning them on their chaise lounge, dropping grapes into their mouths. I mean, why would you want to leave that to go to this dry, dusty place in Judea? These people are so difficult, so difficult to govern. No one wanted to go. And so what happened is the commanders would have to take some of their choices officers and put them in places of authority as mayors or governors over regions until the political apparatus would catch up with the Roman army. And so there's every reason to believe this centurion is placed in that area, in Capernaum, as the governor of the area. He is the most powerful man in the entire region. He has power over life and death. You don't want to mess with this guy. You want this guy on your side. And yet this most powerful man of the entire region shows deference to this young 30-something-year-old rabbi who doesn't even have you know, a TV ministry. There's nothing stupendous about him other than what he's been hearing about the wonder-working power of this young man. And it's made such an impression upon him that I think he's on the cusp, if not already, walked into faith. Now, these are the things Luke tells us about the man. And they are impressive. Willing to sacrifice a humble man, a merciful man. But these are not the things that seem to impress Jesus. He never mentions any of this. None of it. When Jesus sees this man, what impresses him, verse 9, is the man's faith. See that? It amazed Jesus. And I find amazing the way in which this man describes faith. In verse 7 and 8, this, these two verses made such an impression upon me as a very young believer. I've always, always sort of hung on to them. And it's the, the first thing here. Authority, he says that there is this co-relationship between authority and faith. He says, I understand authority. I'm a Roman officer. And, and I have authority over men. And I say, go. And you know what they do? They go. I say, come. And you know what they do? They come. And I have officers above me, generals, who say, go. And you know what I do? I go. And they say, come. And you know what I do? I come. I mean, their very words have authority. And, 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 and Jesus has these words, and we see them all over the scriptures. And he says, come. And he says, go. And we have to decide, do we believe him on that word? And will I follow it? That's faith. That's walking by faith. That's walking by faith. 
But it also says here, in the second point here, that this authority amazed Jesus. That's what was Jesus' reaction. He was amazed by it. And as I mentioned earlier, when was the last time you read in the scriptures that, you, that Jesus was amazed by anybody? In fact, I did a study of this word throughout the New Testament a number of years ago. Wherever it said amazed or marveled, I looked and saw the gist of the, uh, what was going on in the text. And what I discovered was Jesus was amazed a number of times, but more often than not, he was amazed by our unbelief, not by our belief, but our unbelief. You can check it out. Matthew 6, 6 would be a good place to start. He was just amazed by, you mean to tell me, you believe that I am the creator of the entire universe? Yeah. You mean to tell me you believe that I created you as a human being? Yep, 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 I believe that, I believe that. And yet you are struggling whether you're going to get your paycheck this week. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Jesus goes, I'm amazed. I don't understand you. I'm just amazed with your unbelief. And that's where often we find ourselves, right? Hey, we're in church. We can be honest, right? It's so subtle, our unbelief. In our most honest moments, we, we know when we've been there and how we can justify going there. And it's not a good place to be, this unbelief, this unbelief. Jesus was amazed by the belief, by this capacity to step out in faith by a Gentile Roman officer. He never says this about anybody else. Do you ever say, my apostles, I am amazed by your faith? No, no. Mark chapter 4, he certainly was not amazed. Uh, you know, John the Baptist. I mean, people he had close relationships. He refers to a Roman Gentile as the man who just has greater faith. Verse 9, greater faith than anyone else in the, in the nation of Israel. It, it's an amazing story. Story of faith. Well, wonderful thing is, can I trust Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus' authority? Well, the reality is it says a lot. Here's a few testimonials. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, the apostle Paul makes reference to it. He said, God has given all authority to Jesus for the benefit of the church. So it's for your benefit, for my benefit, that Jesus has this authority to say when he says something, he can follow through on it. You can trust him on it. You can step out in faith on that one. He has that authority according to Paul's testimony. John's testimony, John chapter 3, verse 35, the, uh, the father loves the son and has given him all authority over everything. Big or small, God has placed all this authority on Jesus to come alongside and fulfill what he has said in his word so that when he says, I will protect, I will provide, you can take that to the bank. You just got to choose whether you're going to believe it or not. And sometimes you won't. That's unfortunate. The blessing does not follow that kind of attitude and behavior. Jesus' own testimony, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. That's a lot of authority. So yeah, we can trust that Jesus has that authority to come through on what he says. And so when he speaks his words to you in his word, you can trust it. So step out, believe it, fulfill it in your life, and watch the blessing flow. But let me leave us with just a couple reflections as we close off this portion of scripture. Our first reflection is this, great faith. We're talking about great faith here this morning. Jesus was amazed by this faith. And I would like to believe that every once in a while, I might amaze Jesus by my faith even. Not out of pride or arrogance, just out of pure gratitude for all that he's done in my life. Once in a while, I'd love to be able to say, I amazed. It's possible. The inference in this little story is saying it, that is possible. 
First thing is great faith, you can see the slide, great faith is not always characteristic of great people. Great faith is not always characteristic of great people. You know, I pastored for just over 25 years before taking up this role. And there were certain people of great faith in every church I pastored. And we often think the great people of faith are the Billy Grahams. And and certainly these people are wonderful examples of faith being exercised and trusting God for great things. But what I discovered in ministry was often it was the quieter behind the scenes people who were the people of greatest faith. And I often placed them because I always led the prayer ministries in the churches I pastored. I always put them on my prayer teams who would then lead the congregation in the prayer ministries that we offered. They were people that I wanted close to me. And some of you are here this morning. You know who you are. I wanted them close to me because so much of that is more caught than taught. If you want to grow in your faith, Find these people of great faith. You know, there's a spiritual gift of faith that just someone just exudes it. Get close to them. Because so much of what you need to learn, you will catch rather than being taught. You'll, you'll, it'll be caught over time. Bring them close. You know, bring them as part of your, your, your group, of your scope of influence in your life. These people have made extraordinary um, uh, they've been models for me, and they've made extraordinary helps in my life, and I'm just so very grateful for them. But they are not always characteristically the people, the great people up front and doing all, all that kind of stuff. They're quieter, they believe, they pray. You know, Jesus was exhausted. You want to see a day in the life of Jesus? Read Mark chapter 1 and 2. I mean, what, a, what an crazy, exhausting ministry. And he gets in a boat, and he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he's, he's tired. He's had a full day of ministry, and he's with his apostles, and they're going to cross over because they know there are people on the other side of the lake waiting for ministry. And in the midst of that, he falls asleep in the back of the boat. It's the story's told in Mark chapter 4. And a storm comes in, and these are seasoned fishermen, but even seasoned fishermen can be caught unawares in Israel because these great storms come off the sea of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and they get sucked into the sea, uh, the, the, the Galilean Sea. The Galilean Sea is about 14 miles by 7 miles. It's got high mountains, and it almost acts like a funnel, a vortex off of the Mediterranean Sea. It just sucks these storms, and they can get sucked in and then brought into that, that lake so quickly that even seasoned fishermen can go, what just happened? The sky changed. That's what happened. And a storm comes, and there's this horrible storm going on, and you think, look at the disciples, and they've seen Jesus do miracle after miracle during the day, and what is their response? They're fearful. They're full of fear. You can read it for yourself in Mark 4. They're, they're saying, and, Lord, Lord, we're going to drown. And Jesus is back in the boat. He's asleep. He's sleeping through the whole storm. He's exhausted. And I well imagine there are occasions in your life, and there have been in mine, where I think, Jesus, why are you sleeping? Do you not know what we're going through as a family? Do you not know what's going on in my life? Do you not know the hardships we're experiencing as a church family? Are you asleep? You don't care? Of course he does. And I can well imagine the apostles, you go wake them up. I'm not waking them up. They're bailing water. I'm not waking them up. You go, I'm not. You, you. And finally someone goes and wakes up Jesus. And he said, Jesus, Jesus, there's a storm. Wake up. And, you know, Jesus is waking up. And he has a big yawn. And there's a storm. And the wind and the rain is swooping. And there's waves coming into the boat. And he's still stretching. And his first words, first words, verse 40, Mark 4, 
Why are you afraid? Do you still not have faith in me? Ooh, take the dagger out of my back. You still not have faith in me. Mm, yeah, I do falter every now and then. Far more than I like to admit. Or I don't trust him. I don't step up in faith. I don't trust him. He's going to provide for my life, my family, my church in times of duress. Oh, he will. He will. He's there in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm. He's there. I remember about a dozen years ago when I was sitting here, uh, I had our staff you know, on a Tuesday morning staff meeting, and we were sitting around a circle, and we did what we often did. We just shared what was happening in our lives, what happened the past weekend. We'd have a few laughs and just catch up before getting into you know, the work of the, of the week. And I remember our children's director, who's still here, Catherine, she said, we did something very interesting. I don't know if Catherine and family are here today. Hopefully I get this story right. Anyway, Catherine said, we did something really interesting. We, we crossed the, the river and we went to this beautiful uh, theater in Port Huron. It had just been refurbished, renovated. One of these old century, beautiful theaters that, you know, all that, you know, big, bulky, dark oak wood that no one can afford nowadays, but they used to build with it back then. And, and you know, brass chandeliers and red velvet curtains and red velvet chairs and everything was polished brass and it would just look gorgeous. And she said she had Julia and David with her at the time. And I, I know David is a, is a young man now, but he wasn't then. And uh, they came in and David had never been to a theater and they had opened it up for Saturday morning cartoons for families. Great idea. You go with your kids and go watch some cartoons. And David walked in, as Catherine explained it, he walked in, he looked at all the brass and the polished wood and the red velvet and, and the chandeliers and he just went, <gasps> you could just see it on his face. He was in awe. He had walked into a temple. A reverend place, maybe, for a little five-year-old boy. And, and he walked in, and they went into the auditorium, and they sat down, and it was just packed with families, kids crawling over the chairs. I mean, this is back 100 years ago, and the chairs were really small and tight, and people like me don't fit in, on, in them anymore because people were so much smaller 100 years ago. But he got into that chair and with everybody else, and then the lights went down, and the, the flickering of the film came onto this big, huge, two-story screen with the red velvet curtains parting. And they had you there just like they do if you go to a theater. For the first 15, 20 minutes, you know what they do? Commercial after commercial. Ellen, where are you going to go? They know you have. They've got you. Commercial after commercial. And the first commercial was a Pepsi Cola commercial. And this great glass comes into view, two stories high. And David's looking up there with this dripping down the side, condensation with Pepsi Cola written across the glass. And then into view, a large bottle of Pepsi Cola comes in and it goes, and it just fills this glass up, filling it up, and the popping and the fizzing and the foam starts to cascade over the top of that. I want a Pepsi right now. This stuff actually works. Works. But David doesn't understand that. He, he's five years old. He doesn't understand marketing. He doesn't know what these ruthless practitioners of advertisements are trying to do to our lives. He doesn't get it. He's five. And as this is happening, these words go across the screen. What do you want? I want a Pepsi. I want it now. David is young. He does not understand what they're trying to do to him. But he has been told by mommy and daddy that it's polite to answer a man when he asks a question. And in the midst of the crowd, David yelled out or said out loud enough for others to hear, I want God. 
Well, I really put the pressure on David now, didn't I? And I remember just looking and listening to Catherine tell that story now, a dozen years ago or more. I thought, man alive, our children can teach us so much about faith. They just get it. They don't question God. He says something, I do it. God says, go this way, I go this way. God says, turn right, I turn right. God says, jump, I jump. I just do what I'm told. I believe God and God blesses. Why do you think when all these children were surrounding Jesus and the disciples were saying, okay, kids, it's time for children's church. Let's get rid of you. And I'm not against children's church. I'm not. Sorry, Catherine. I mean, it's not, I mean, and what is Jesus' response? No, suffer the little children. He wants them to remain. In fact, Jesus goes on to, he qualifies that statement. This is the part we often forget. He says, I want your faith to be like theirs. The faith of a child. That's the benchmark Jesus wants. We get so sophisticated. We strike up committees and special meetings. And I'm all for planning. The book of Proverbs is all about planning. I'm a process guy. Anybody who knows me know that. But we often and can often use it as a great excuse not to decide to do something. We defer it to a committee because we're not sure we can believe God at it. I'm not sure God really will supply the funding. Let's get a committee. It can be a great big excuse for not trusting God by faith. Last thing I want to share, and we'll end with this. Great faith, like great strength, is most often revealed when it's easily exercised. Let me say that again. Great faith, like great strength, is most often revealed when it's easily exercised. Remember, I started by sharing a story about Alex, you know, running around the house just to get all the eebie-jeebies out of him. I mean, I'm telling Alec, Alec, faith is like a muscle. You have to exercise. You have to exercise. If you're going to be a big, strong guy like your dad. You're going to have to exercise that muscle of faith. You're going to be a strong person of faith. You know, Alec has spent his life taking care of himself. Uh, you know, lift. He's still, he's 30 years old and he's still an amazing athlete, lifting weights. I mean, we're so different. He likes to lift dumbbells. I like to lift donuts. I'm into donuts. He's into dumbbells. But I remember uh, when he was in university and I would fairly regularly text him what I was reading in my devotions because I was just as a dad trying to, you know, encourage my son to stay in God's word daily. And I came to this passage and it was right around the time that the Olympics were on at the time in London, as the Olympics are now in, uh, in uh, Japan. And I said, you know, it's, it, this, this is an amazing story. You know, I was talking to my son and and uh, I said, imagine us being in London, being there for the Olympics, and we go to the weightlifting you know, contest, and all these huge individuals, men and women with muscles, I didn't even know you could have. I mean, they're just big, big guys. And it comes down to the last three contestants, and, and it's the clean and jerk, where you have to take this massive weight and bring it up to your chest, and then spend a moment, and then put it over your head. And, and the first individual for whatever country comes up and, you know, he's in that sort of thousand yard or thousand meter stare and, and he comes and he, and he gets it up, but he fails. And then the second individual gets and they, they, they can't even get it up to their chest. They failed and the, and the weight just drops. And then the, the, the Russian comes to the the, to the floor, to the, the platform. And he, you know, he's so huge. His, I mean, his legs are like the cedars of Lebanon. They're so big. He doesn't walk. He kind of just waddles as they rub against each other. And I mean, his neck, you can't even see his neck. His neck has disappeared amongst these watermelon-sized shoulders that are just huge. 
and, and he's just in this sort of stare, and he's, he's come to win this for Mother Russia, and he's, he's got this, this weight that is beyond anything I could possibly imagine human being lift up. I mean, it's just humongous, but he's the side of an Abram's tank. Surely he can do it. And my son said, no, no, Dad, wait. And I said, come on, look at the size of the guy. He'll do that. He'll do that with three of his fingers. No, wait a sec, Dad, got to watch him. And he gets in and he dusts himself up with that chalk and it's just, you know, all over in the atmosphere and the spotlights are on him and he comes to this way and he finally gets there and he, he grabs hold of it. And when he gets down like this, these huge shoulders just sort of, just sort of come and cover his face and just a nose is peeking out as he's hanging on a bar and just he wills that weight up to his shoulders and I'm going oh I told you Alex saying just wait dad just wait and then he just sort of just 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 in a moment he throws it up over his head and I'm going oh, and Alex says wait and then all of a sudden I see it and you go he's not got it he's sort of going over to here and he's sort of going over to there and he desperately for that moment gets it control of it the whistle goes saying that he's got control and he drops the weight and he is completely spent nothing left i mean it takes his coach and six trainers to get this hulk of a man to waddle him off the platform and i look at my son i say wow i didn't see that coming my son said yeah the weight always indicates the true strength of the man the storms of life always manifest and indicate the true maturity of your faith it's in the storms when we sometimes think jesus is asleep in the back of the boat he's not asleep he's never asleep but we think he is that indicates how much you've really grown and when you struggle with your faith i often think that some people say belief the other side the other side of the coin of belief is actually unbelief i don't think it is i think it's fear and every time every time you can be a big strong man Showing up to church looking like you got it all together every Sunday. But you feel fear? Oh yeah, you do. You do. You're not fooling me. That's just an indication. That's a warning light going ding, 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 ding. Check your faith. Check your faith. Because fear shouldn't be part of your life. It's faith. Unbelief, that's symptomatic of fear. We've got to take care of fear. Fear kills faith. Fear is a serial killer. Kills our faith all the time. Check the fear. Check the fear. Whether it's in your life, your family, or whether it's in this church family. We start feeling fear, it's time to have a prayer meeting. It's time to pray together. Get people of faith together and pray for our church. Fear. You know, Dallas Willard, probably one of the greatest devotional writers of the last century with the Lord now, but he said something like this. I can't quote him, but he said, you know, every time we talk about our struggle of faith, because that's often what we talk about when we talk about faith. Oh, my struggle, I struggle. My struggle with faith, my struggle. He said, often really, when we're talking about our struggle with our faith, it's really, in reality, it's our struggle to act as if we have faith when we don't, when we don't. We just got to be honest with ourselves. The wonderful thing in Luke chapter 7, verse 5 is when the apostles come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we don't have this kind of faith. We admit it. That's a good place to start. I don't have this kind of faith that you expect faith of a child, a faith of a Roman centurion. I don't have this kind of faith. What was Jesus' reaction in, seven, in Luke 17, verse 5? They get lost. I'm so fed up. You guys have been hanging around with me for three years. You've walked with me. You've ate with me. We've talked together. I've shown up to miracle after miracle right in front of you, and you still haven't got faith? Get lost. I'm done with you. Was that his reaction? Uh-uh. No way. You look for yourself in Luke 17, he just said, then 
then just come follow me. Come abide. Come on. Let's get a little closer. And then he tells them the story of the mustard seed. Faith of a mustard seed. That's Jesus' response when we fail in our faith and choose fear instead. And so if you're struggling, as I imagine you have or you will in the future, recognize that you have a compassionate, merciful Savior who wants to come alongside and say, abide with me. Come follow me. We're doing this together. So remember this. If you love Jesus every single day, every single day, you get to choose how much God chooses to bless you. Step out in faith, Temple Baptist Church, and you'll, you'll see the blessing. You'll see tremendous blessing in 2022. Trust God. Amen? So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for this passage from God's word, from your word, Lord. And we want to apply it to our lives this week. And for many of us, that's going to come in a variety of different applications. For some of us, we've come this morning with deep needs in our lives. We've received news from our doctor that is very harsh news to hear. We've, we've received something from work or going through something at work that is really difficult. We're struggling in our spiritual life or in our own church. And Lord, we need to trust you in this season, that you are going to provide, you are going to protect, you are going to be there in our time of need. You're not asleep. And I pray, Father, that you might just come alongside of your children here at Temple. Whether here in this room or online, I just pray right now, Father, that you may give that assurance that you're a good God and you want to be in relationship with your children. For those of us who have not made that faith step to receive Christ the Savior, this is the day of our salvation. May we Be courageous and yet humble enough to receive you, Jesus, as our personal Savior this morning, at this moment. For we want to pray these things in Jesus, his name, his mighty name. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you out in the foyer.